Well, good evening, everyone. Erev Tov. Welcome to Echoes of Eden. Uh, welcome back from the two-week hiatus, I suppose. In the time in between, I was able, uh, by God's grace, uh, to make it to the land of Israel, Eretz Israel, and back. I uh, only had one flight canceled before we went and one delay coming home, but uh, we made it um, through it all, and it was uh, a good time. Uh, if you weren't in uh, the Mosaic teaching this past Sunday, you should check it out online. I uh, shared a few pictures from that trip as well as the devotions or teachings I shared at those sites. And uh, this coming Sunday uh, in Mosaic, we'll kind of do a part two of that as well. And then Mosaic will pick back up with its regular <clears throat> kind of schedule. Uh, and speaking of schedule... I do want to make you aware that next Monday we won't have class because I will be at uh, our seminary in Concordia in Fort Wayne uh, for a symposium. Uh, so I will be down there uh, doing some theology and hanging out in the library and having a good little time there. Uh, but then we will resume class on January 23rd. Uh, I'll try to remember to send that out in the group email later this week as a reminder. Also, if you know other people who uh, are frequenters of Echoes of Eden, let them know uh, that next week, the 16th, we will not be meeting because I will be at a symposium. Uh, but we will be back on the 23rd. All right, so that's kind of the announcement portion. Uh, let's get started now with the blessing before the study of Torah, and then we'll dive in. So let's pray. Baruch atah Adonai eleheinu melech ha'olam, asher kidishanu b'misvitah v'sivanu l'esoch b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to be immersed into the words and the matters of Torah. Amen. So uh, this week begins uh, a new portion, not only a new portion, but a new book uh, in the Torah. Uh, it is known, uh, the portion and the book, as Shemot. Uh, so we're entering into Sefer Shemot, the book of Shemot, and the first chapter, the first division, the first portion, the parasha, is also named Shemot. Shemot means names in Hebrew. Uh, and so in Hebrew, uh, the book is not called Exodus. Now, I'll refer to it as Exodus when we're uh, talking, but you do need to be aware that if you were on earth 2,000 years ago in the Galilee hanging out with Jesus and said, hey, let's look at the book of Exodus, he would have turned his head sideways and been like, what you talking about, right? He did not know of a book of Exodus. He knew of Sefer Shemot. Uh, and it is significant. It's no small detail uh, that uh, the... the Shemot names, uh, it's not just called that because the first major word of the book and the portion is names. These are the names. These are the Shemot. Uh, but it's in this portion, but it's also in the entire book that the names of God are revealed. So in this portion specifically, you have in Genesis 3, verse 15, and that's those surrounding verses, several key names of God given to us, Enochi, uh, and of course the Tetragrammaton. Uh, but later in Exodus, and several portions from now, you have the 72 names uh, at the the parting of the Red Sea. And so it's really about the names of God and the power and the spiritual technology that comes with the names of God. 
Uh, and so its name is significant. Uh, it covers, obviously, beginning in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, and goes through the first verse of chapter 6. So more or less, it's the first five chapters of the book of Exodus plus one verse. So that's where we're finding ourselves. It's the 13th division of the Torah. The Torah has 54 divisions uh, that can at times be shrunk to as many as, I mean, as few as just 48. Uh, Sometimes it's a double portion. Um, But we're also, and I'll talk about it in a little bit, we always want to make sure we live in the times, uh, that we, we're in rhythm with uh, God's cycle, his festivals. We're in rhythm with the portions for that week. We're also entering into, um, if you will, a very holy time starting uh, this Friday evening and for the next six weeks. And it's one of those holy times that has not transitioned into Christianity. Uh, and so it's one you probably have not heard of, so I want to make you aware of it, because again, if if uh, Jesus were alive today in the human flesh, incarnated among us and walking among us, this is something he would be aware of. It would be something that would be governing his relationship with his Father. Uh, and so I want you to be aware of that technology as well. Uh, and so we're entering into an auspicious six weeks, uh, and so we'll talk a little bit about what those six weeks are. All right, so that's uh, where we are in the Torah. So what happens in this specific portion? What's going on in these opening five verses of Sefer Shemot, the book of Exodus? Well, as we ended Sefer Bereshit, the book of Genesis, that really let us know from a narrative perspective how the children of Israel ended up in Egypt, right? There was um, a famine, you know, Joseph had gotten there, and then the famine brought uh, Jacob's sons there. Of course, Joseph and his brothers and their kind of games that they played, Joseph ended up bringing Jacob down there into Egypt. And so this is how Israel, if you will, finds its way into Egypt. And so Exodus begins uh, this story of Israel in Egypt. That's why in Hebrew, the book of Exodus begins with a vav, which is the Hebrew letter that is the coordinating conjunction and. So even though it's a new book, and even though it makes very bad English grammar, if you were to ever begin a book with the coordinating conjunction AND, capital A-N-D, right, you'd get in a lot of trouble, right? You can't can't begin a sentence with AND. Well, God begins an entire book with AND, which is a way of letting us know that what happens in this book is intricately connected with what came before it. So why it's a separate book, it's also connected to what came before. So this continues the story. This new book of the Torah begins as the children of Israel are in Egypt, but they're they're successful, right? They're in the land of the Goshen. Uh, They have very fertile land, and they're blessed by God, and they multiply, and they grow in number. And so threatened by the growing numbers, Pharaoh enslaves them and orders the Hebrew midwives to kill all the male babies at birth. Of course, this is foreshadowing Messiah, right? We see shadows of Messiah in the text. This is foreshadowing later on in history, another world leader, one of the world's most powerful leaders, being threatened by 
the birth of, of a Jewish baby and orders the slaughtering of the innocents, of course, talking about Herod and so forth. So you have that going on here. Remember, things from a Hebraic worldview are not linear. They are cyclical. They are spiral, but they're fractals that kind of spiral around but get tighter and tighter and tighter. Uh, and so history simply repeats itself. The book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon uh, speaks to that. So when these midwives do not comply, uh, he commands his people to begin casting the babies into the Nile. During this time, a child is born to a woman named Yochaved, who was the daughter of Levi. So Jacob had a son named Levi. Levi had a daughter named Yochaved. All right. And so Levi's grandson, that's who we're talking about. And her husband named Amram, who is also from the tribe of Levi. Um, they have a child, and because all of this is going around, they fear for the safety of the child. So most translations say they place this baby in, um, in a basket, right? But it's really, uh, kind of when we were in Genesis 6, we talked about the ark. Only two places in the entire Bible the word ark is used in the Noah account. And also here. So this baby, who is Moses, is placed in an ark, right? And you may recall, and we'll bring it back up again a little bit later, but the Hebrew word for ark is teva, T-E-V-A, transliterated teva, which doesn't just mean ark. Does anyone remember what it means? Word. It also means word, right? A very important concept. So um, they're placing him in this ark. Right? They're placing them in, this, in this, this word. And the baby sister Miriam stands watch from afar. And then Pharaoh's daughter discovers the boy, raises him as her son, and she names him Moses. Now we'll talk about, remember, names are never just names. We'll talk about what Moses means and how it's intricately tied with his mission and purpose in life. As a young man, Moses leaves the palace and he discovers the hardship of his Hebrew brethren. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and he kills the Egyptian. And the next day, when he sees two Hebrews fighting, uh, he admonishes them and they then reveal they know what he did the previous day. And Moses is forced to flee Midian. I want you to keep that in mind because these two individuals that kind of threaten Moses... They don't go away. They come back later in the book of Exodus. They are a thorn in his side, not only here, but much later on. And we will eventually put names to them. For, but for now, um, know that they say they're going to reveal him and, and turn him in. And so he is forced to flee to Midian. There in Midian, he rescues a man named Jethro, his daughters. Uh, Mary's one of them, whose name is Zipporah. And he becomes a shepherd of his father-in-law Jethro's flocks. God then appears to Moses in a burning bush at the foot of Mount Sinai and instructs, and God there instructs him to go to Pharaoh and demand that famous quote, let my people go so that they may serve me. Right? We often hear, some translations have it, 
let them go worship me. And that's a correct translation, but the reason I like serve is because I want you to realize that there are all kinds of words in the Bible for what people offer to God. They offer him adoration. They offer him awe. They offer him obedience. But the word in Hebrew that really means worship or gets that's truly accurately translated as worship technically means serve, right? And so they are to serve, they're to worship, God, and then uh, Moses' brother Aaron is appointed to serve alongside of Moses. And then in Egypt, Moses and Aaron assemble the elders of Israel uh, and tell them that the time of redemption has come. And the people believe, uh, but Pharaoh refuses to let them go. In fact, he intensifies the suffering, which is a powerful lesson for us, that when we are seeking spiritual freedom, when we are seeking release from bondage, when we are seeking spiritual elevation, when we are seeking good things in our life, the enemy will double down. The enemy will double down. But if you're aware of that and you have knowledge of that, that's the bulk of the battle, because then when the kickback comes, you know what the kickback is, and then you know the kickback is affirmation that you're on the right track, and it can strengthen you in your battle as opposed to it discouraging you and overwhelming you. Uh, so when Pharaoh intensifies it, Moses goes back to God and says, hey, why are you doing this evil to this people? And God returns fire that indeed he will redeem his people. He will be faithful. And this begins uh, something we can also learn in our personal relationship with God. If we pay close attention throughout the book of Exodus on how Moses and God communicate, it gives us insight into how we can and should communicate with God as well, including at times arguing with God or debating with God or calling God's bluff or encouraging God or beseeching God. Moses does the whole kind of uh, spectrum of interaction with God, uh, which can instruct us as well. So that's the summary of the first five chapters, okay? Okay. So let's dive in uh, just a little bit more. I want to talk about insight into uh, Sefer Shemot, this book of names. That's really uh, the name of it, the book of names. As I said, Shemot literally means names, uh, and beginning with this portion, also named uh, names. I want you to understand from this portion all the way to the portion named Mishpatim. So in your uh, handbook that you got, or you can get online, uh, in your reading schedule, if you look at the names of the portion in Exodus, there are the. I want you to look at the first six, and you'll see that the sixth portion of Exodus is known as Mishpatim. So from Shemot to Mishpatim. These six weeks describe the Israelites' process of going forth from Egypt, a process that eventually culminated in the building of the Mishkan, the tabernacle. This process takes place through the biblical stories, and in the coming weeks, it's known as this. It's known as Shovavim. That's actually a biblical holiday. It's known as Shovavim. And what Shovavim is, is that's the first letter of the first six portions of Exodus and made into a word, Shovavim. If you are careful with your search on the internet, I will give you permission to Google Shovavim, but be careful what you read about it 
because not everything you read on the internet is true are are good right and salutary uh so know your sources but it's a very intense six weeks, spiritually speaking. And this is how, when you're going to be reading Exodus over these next six weeks, this is how you can begin to think about how can this text come to life for me? How can the Holy Spirit use even these ancient words of a people leaving Egypt to impact and change my life today? Because their story is your story, and they are us, and you are them. Uh, and so you need to be reading it that way, that archetypal way. And what's going on in Shovavim, the energy, it's really an energy of teshuva. It's an energy of repentance. It's an energy of returning to God. But how I want you to think of repentance during this time period is what repentance really is when we want to think about spiritual technology is repentance is a spiritual time machine. Repentance is a spiritual time machine. So in these next six weeks, I want you to think about uh, when you're reading the portion, like all the negativity in your life and all the negative choices that you've made, all the poor choices you've made, all the poor decisions or poor actions that you've made. And don't just say you're sorry for them. And don't just be sorry that they happened or how repentance is a spiritual time machine is that you're to go back to that time. You're to, you're to take the time to put yourself back in that situation, but in your mind, play through it how you should have done it. What would have been the correct call? What would have been the correct decision? What would have been a, what would have been a better response than yelling at your spouse? What would have been a better response than kicking your child out of your house? What would have been a, a better response than hanging up on that person or sending that text or banning them from your social media? What would have been something better? And replay that in your mind. You're going back. You're returning. Remember, shuva means to return. You're returning to that and relive it and feel the pain and don't hide from it, right? Name it. And of course, you're going to be sorry for it. And of course, you're going to confess it. And of course, you're going to trust that your God through his Messiah, Jesus Christ, is going to forgive it. But you also need to kind of relive it and then commit to a course of different action because not only is biblical history cyclical, your life is cyclical. And if you even just reflect on that for a little bit, you will see that. You will see that somehow the same kind of people keep ending up in your life, right? Even if you move to a different state, you end up with the same person in your life, right? Different name, maybe even a different gender, but it's the same thorn in your side, or it's the same struggle. It's the same aggravation. Every time that happens, why that is happening is because God is letting it play through again and letting you this time get it right. So prepare, and Shovavim is the time to figure out that, and so that when it comes back around, you can correctly navigate through it, and when you correctly navigate through it, that person will never enter your life again, no matter in what form, right? So it's a very, very powerful time uh, to correct our actions. It's, it's more than just simple awareness, um, but uh, and, and one of the ways to do it, and I'll give you a couple of those tonight uh, at the end. I really want to give you a way to like meditate on the text, but it's the names. It's the names of God. Uh, and so knowing those names, praying those names during Shovavim, very powerful, very powerful time to do that. Uh, so be very aware of that. It's something, again, uh, it's a rhythm. 
It's a biblical rhythm. It's a biblical rhythm our Messiah would have known. Now, the story of Exodus, the interesting thing, is it's really not about an Exodus. It deals with the matters that lead up to the Exodus, that of entering into the land of Egypt. And the sages have taught us that the word Egypt in Hebrew is Mitzrayim. And this is very important, and the, if you have studied with me any short amount of time, you'll hear me say this a million times. It's an important concept. You need to know that Egypt in Hebrew is not the name of a geographic location. They called that geographic location, that part of Africa just below Israel, they called it Mitzrayim because of what Mitzrayim means. Mitzrayim means constriction. Mitzrayim means constraint. Mitzrayim means exile. Mitzrayim means being stuck between a rock and a hard place. And that's why they called that place that name, which means on an archetypal level, anything that is giving you constriction spiritually, anything that is constraining you, anything that is holding you hostage, anything that is putting chains around you, anything that is exiling you from goodness, that's Egypt, which means the story of the Israelites in Egypt and then leaving Egypt is the story of us entering into the bondages of our life, but then giving us the way out. Just as they needed a Moses, they needed a Redeemer, they needed an individual to come and show them the way and bring them, the same for us. But also there are smaller lessons along the way that help us break out of our exiles and break out of those stuck between a rock and hard place in our life. This is the time of the year to do that. Right? This is the time of year to be thinking about that, to be praying about that, to be reading these portions, expecting God to reveal what he needs to reveal to you and your, your heart and your soul and your mind being receptive to that. Mitzrayim uh, is really about our personal exile to the slavery of things like illness and pain and suffering and the things we have to undergo to those aspects of life that cause us distress and chaos. And so this time of Shovavim, is there chaos in your life? Maybe it's, maybe it's a good year and it's not going on. And that's great. And Baruch Hashem, bless, bless be God for that, right? But if there's some chaos in your life, these are the six weeks to kick it. These are the six weeks. This is a Moedim. This is a, an appointment, a divine appointment. This is why the book of Exodus is being read all around the world right now. It is to redeem us and bring us out of the chaos. Of course, it's always going to be pointing us to our Messiah in the process of doing that. So when Jacob returns and enters into Egypt, we understand this to mean that when we consciously choose to enter into exile, our chaos, if we do so with the understanding that it's a process, that it's not really a destination, and it's not an end in itself, and the chaos that we experience exists only to correct us, to make a tikkun, it's all necessary because of the choices we've made before and the actions we've taken. Once we understand this exile, this chaos for what it is, then we can immediately begin the process of getting out of it. So the story of Shemot is both about 
the freedom that emerges from this chaos, but also how to eliminate it from our lives. The Zohar and the Holy Ari stress that the word Mitzrayim again comes from the word Mitzra, M-I-T-Z-R-A. It comes from the word Mitzra, again, which means to compress, to close in, to constrict, to restrict freedom without movement. Um, Mitzra covers every aspect of distress and chaos in our lives in one form or another. The book of Shemot, the book of Exodus, gives us the spiritual technology to overcome and defeat this. It's the portion of the Word of God that's living, breathing, and active, and it is the spiritual technology handbook to overcome chaos. That is why the setting of the passion of our Messiah, when he defeats the enemy, when he brings redemption, when is that setting? When, what is the backdrop of all of that? Passover, the Exodus. It's not just a coincidence. Messiah brings salvation during Passover. There could be no other time for him to do it. There could be no other time for him to do it. So that's a little more about the name, names, the name Shemot, and what this, not only this portion, but these next six weeks are really about. So now I want to talk about being drawn from water, which is another lesson in your, in your handbook, right? You had your Hebraic toolbox, and one of those very famous ones is names are never just names. And so I want to talk about the name of Moses. After the family of Moses hides them in an ark and puts him in the Nile for fear that he would be killed by the Egyptians... The Torah relates how Pharaoh's daughter finds him, and she is the one who gives him his name. So this is from the portion. This is Exodus chapter 2, verse 10. It says, she, meaning the daughter of Pharaoh, named him Moshe. That's Moses' name in Hebrew, Moshe. And she said, for I drew him from the water. Now in English, you can't see why she named him Moshe, because you're like, eh. all right, the words I drew him, have the m and sh sound in it. In other, words, in other words, Moses or Moshe is the noun form of the verb to draw out of water. So that's why she names him Moshe. In other words, his name is intricately connected to water. Okay? And that's an important concept. The name Moses or Moshe begins with the letter mem, begins with the letter Mem, just like the word for water, which is Ma'im. Additionally, the first two letter of, letters of Moses' name are also the first two letters in the word drew him, meaning drew him from the water. According to the Hebraic Torah worldview, names are never just names. And so names given at birth are derived in many cases from a deep sense of intuition. That's why in, a, in Jewish culture, you don't name a baby until after it's born. Because what, what traditionally what's done is the parents hold the baby and the ba they look at the baby and they spend time getting to know the baby and watch the baby's face and, and discover the baby's personality over a couple of days. And then they name the child because the name Name, I wish we understood this more. Names really matter. 
Names aren't just cognitive sounds that mean draw our attention to something. Names define us. And we know this with sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And when in reality, words are what kill us and sticks and stones aren't that big a deal. Because we heal from bruises and stuff. But 30 years later, if someone called me a big fat loser in third grade, I'll remember that when I'm 40 years old. Names define us. Words create. And when you name a child, that's a big deal. And so it's associated with intuition, inspiration, even prophecy. It was for such qualities along with her compassion and her commitment to saving this Hebrew baby's life at the risk of her own that Jewish tradition actually give Pharaoh's daughter a name. It's not listed in the Bible, but they give her a name, and they give her the name Batya, which means the daughter of God, the daughter of Yah. And to illustrate this prophecy in action through time, that Moses, indeed, his name defined him, that it's deeply associated with water and the drawing out of water and, and, and the letter Mem. Uh, maybe over time we'll get to explore the, the power of each letter, but Moses is deeply associated with the Hebrew letter Mem, or M. To illustrate this, Moses was saved through the agency of water. He met his wife at a well of water. This is very significant. If you ever want to have a fun little Bible study, look at all the people who meet women at wells. It's not just John 4 with Jesus. Jesus is simply doing a repeated cycle. There are more than one, there's more than two women at the well in the Bible, which then help you know more what's going on in John 4. All right? But Moses meets his wife at a well of water. A number of the ten plagues were connected in one way or another to water. He led the people, obviously, through the reed sea to freedom through water. He brought water from a rock, and ultimately he was deprived of the right to enter into the land of Israel because he struck a rock to bring forth water instead of speaking to it as God had commanded him. Additionally, he was the agent through whom God gave the Torah to Israel. And as I've already talked about in previous classes, and as the Talmud says, there is no water but Torah. Like, because... The Word of God is deeply connected to water because what do you need to live? You need bread and you need water. Those are two metaphors for the very Word of God. Right? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word from God. And so Moses brings and he gives the Word of God. He gives the Torah at Sinai, right? And, um, and then uh, Moses' name given to him by Pharaoh's daughter, it contains his life history and his mission as well as his soul's essence in seed form. So names are never just names. And that's a little bit what's behind Moses' name, Moshe. A fire that does not consume. So I want to look now at Exodus chapter 3. I want to look at the first uh, verses there. So beginning in the first verse of Exodus 3, it says, Moses was pasturing the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law, the chief of Midian. And he led the flocks after the free pasture land, and he came to the mountain of God, to Horeb. An angel of God appeared to him in a flame of fire from within the thorn bush. And behold, the thorn bush was burning with fire, but the thorn bush was not being consumed. So Moses said, Let me turn now and see this great spectacle. Why does the thorn bush 
not burn up. So here we have one of the best-known images of the Torah, a bush that burns and is not consumed. Only when Moses took the time to investigate this unusual phenomenon did God speak to him. It's a very important lesson in these opening verses because it's a very important lesson for you. I'm trying to think of a good kind of modern day example. It, it may be, let's say you travel the same way to work every day, and you've done that for years. So much so that you could do it pretty much blindfolded, right? You know, there's this bump, you know, right after you get on the bridge, there's always that little dip there, and you just, you know the way. And then somewhere along there, Someone put up a, a banner or a sign, but because you just know the way and it's routine, you just keep driving by it. And then someone talks about, hey, did you go to this great event that happened last week? And you're like, I never heard about it. And they're like, how could you have missed it? Like they put signs all the way down 21 mile road there. Like, and you're just like, you know, I, I never bothered to pay attention, right? What you're going to learn here is that God is putting burning bushes in front of you that aren't being consumed all the time. Are you taking the time to actually notice the bushes burning but not being consumed? A bush on fire out in the desert really is not that shocking. And so it would be something that at first would be ordinary. You would only notice that it's not ordinary if you actually slowed down and watched it long enough to realize that thing isn't burning up, right? But you got to slow down and you got to take notice of it, right? Very, very important point. Only when Moses realized that it took the time to realize this bush was not only on fire, not that big a deal. That's like, seeing a traffic jam or seeing some, some police lights on the right side at the gas station, right? You just kind of go by it. Moses stopped, and he stopped long enough to figure out something else was going on. Only then did God speak to him. Although it was certainly an unusual sight to see, how many people would just walk by and not take the time to see what was actually happening? In other words, here's the important lesson. God sends us signs all the time. The question is whether we take the time to pause, to listen, and then most importantly, to receive the lesson. Whereas in this instance, the infinite one appears in a fire that is not consumed, it's interesting that another verse in this portion describes God in very different terms. For God, your God, is a consuming fire, right? Not one that doesn't burn up, which means it's not consuming. It's not consuming anything. He's described as a non-consuming fire in Exodus 3. And then in Exodus 4, he's described as a consuming fire that does burn up. Thus, we see that there are two types of fire when relating to God. And hereby comes a practical lesson from an ancient text for us today. Inasmuch as a human being is created in the divine image, 
and the Torah goes so far as to command us to emulate our creator, it follows that we also manifest these same two types of fire. The human being is a composite of body and soul. We are a body and we are a soul. And each can manifest, depending on the circumstance, both types of fires, a consuming fire and one that does not consume. When a person allows their bodily desires, for instance, and their fiery passions to rule over them, when you don't control your anger, when you can't control your road rage, when you can't bite your tongue, when you can't keep your cool, when you can't say no, when you know you should, there's a very good chance that they and others around them will be consumed by the very fire they are projecting. The more we feed this passion, the more acceptable and even addictive it will become until we lose control altogether and it starts controlling us. However, we can take that same passion and channel it and temper it and then harness it for positive ways. And in this, it becomes holy and whole. That is the fire that burns but does not consume. And a great example of this in the New Testament is Saul of Tarsus. At first, he has a consuming fire. He's a persecutor. He's a murderer. He participates in evil, but in the name of God, of course. Well, when he encounters Jesus, Jesus doesn't want to change him. He wants to transform him, but he doesn't want to change his essence. He takes the same fire and zeal that caused him to be a consuming fire and he puts it to holy use paul is just as much a zealot for the gospel as he was when he was putting stephen when he was holding the coats and approving of stephen's death it's the same fire but one is consuming and one is not it's being channeled these fires also exist on a soul level when any spiritual passion becomes an obsessive or extreme, it too can manifest as an all-consuming fire. Whether that's extreme asceticism that harms the body and puts unnecessary stress, extreme personality correct characteristics and opinions can destroy relationships and opportunities and in the end thwart one's true purpose in life. Many common expressions actually showcase this emotional experience of the all-consuming fire. For instance, it's actually we have idioms for this. I really got burned. I am burnt out. Other expressions without the word fire expressing the same sentiment, this is too much, I can't handle this, I'm freaking out, I'm out of here. In the positive sense, the soul is compared to a fire whose flame seeks to ascend towards the divine source. In Hebrew, the word for flame is shalhevet. Shalhevet, when you add up the letters, remember in Hebrew the letters are numbers, when you add up the letters in shalhevet, it equals 737, which is equal to Exodus chapter 6, verse 5, when you're called to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your means. That phrase equals 737. In Hebrew thought, names or phrases that have, similar, have the same numerical value are synonymous, and they inform of one another. And so how do you have a, 
a fire in your soul, you love God with everything you got. That's a true fire. This teaches us the true love of God should be experienced and expressed as a burning passion, all-encompassing, illuminating a state of consciousness, inspiring us to reach upward like a dancing flame. Aaron, the high priest, was commanded to light the menorah and the tabernacle, as we'll eventually see in the Torah. And regarding this commandment, in Numbers chapter 8, verse 2, Rashi comments that he kindled the lights until the flame would rise above on its own power. The phrase is ad hashavet ola me'alahe. The simple meaning of the phrase is that Aaron was obligated not only to light the menorah, to light the lights, but to make sure that they stayed lit on their own. They were a fire that did not consume. They were a fire that continued to burn. It's a powerful spiritual lesson for us. A superficial love of God based purely on a sense of obligation or duty is not enough to keep one's flames lit. I saw this so much when I was in seminary. And unfortunately, recently, I saw it again when I was in the company of seminarians who think that if they do everything right and that on a superficial level of all the boxes are checked and they've bowed the right way and they've genuflected at the right time and they've worn the right vestments and they've said the right words and they've properly divided the word of God, that if they do all of that, then they're loving God. But that's not enough because they don't have a fire. They don't have an all-consuming passion for God. Everything's superficial. Everything's superficial. What they haven't learned yet is how to truly love God and to love people. To love people. Unfortunately, so often in seminary, We're taught to love theology, but we're not taught to love people. We're taught to love being right, but we're not taught to love God. We're taught that if we are right and we do everything correct, that means we do love God, and we mistake that for love. Superficiality, the flame, will consume and go out. In fact, the word in Hebrew for holy is kadosh, kadosh. The letters can then be interpreted to mean yakod esh, ignited fire. The word for holy in Hebrew means ignited fire. Holiness, when experienced in a healthy spiritual manner, is a fire that burns continuously and is not consumed. When God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, this is what was happening. That's what it's trying to convey to you. Don't get wrapped up on Is the bush still there today? Could we find the bush? Is it still on fire? It doesn't matter. That's not what it's trying to tell you. right? What it's trying to tell you, what Moses was encountering, was that it's more than simply drawing his attention. God was about to put Moses' shoulder on his shoulder, the tremendous responsibility of being Israel's redeemer and bringing them out of Egypt and leading them to the Holy Land. Positions of leadership are fraught with challenges and obstacles, and leaders are ripe for burnout. Oh, leaders are ripe for burnout. And God was assuring Moses that if he would take upon himself the mantle of leadership that he was giving him, 
the fire would be burned brightly and that it would not be consumed and that he, Moses, would not be burnt out or burnt up in doing it. That's what God was communicating to him. The revealed and the hidden. So here's a little jot and tittle, and I'm sorry, I meant to take a screenshot of my Torah and put it up on the screen, and I, um, I just got back from Israel, all right? Um, and it's about, let's see, two in the morning for me, okay? Um, so I'll still describe what's going on, but it's a, a jot and a tittle. Again, Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, not one jot or tittle of the Torah pass away, which means all those little dots and lines and big letters or small letters, and in this case, intentional misspellings, all help us understand the Torah. Now, this will also help demystify or break a myth associated with the Jewish people. Most are aware that a Jewish person will not pronounce the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of God. What, as a Jewish person, I find amusing is the reasons Christians give as to why we won't say it. The number one reason is they've forgotten how to say it. Yeah, we remember how to read the entire Torah, but somehow we've forgotten how to say those four letters. But we can read every other word in the Torah. We can have a nation that has that Hebrew as its official language, but we forgot that one word, the word that's mentioned the most in the Bible. Yeah, it's not because we forgot it. The second reason often given is, well, they're trying to obey the commandment not to take God's name in vain, and because it's such a holy name, they'll never say it that way. They can't misuse it. It's a way of revering the name. Yeah, it sounds great, but it's not why. There are two main reasons why. I'm going to tell you one now, because the Bible says that. Yeah, oh yeah, the Bible says it in this week's portion. I'm going to show you where it says it. There's another reason. You'll have to wait for that one. All right. So I want to look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 15. Commenting on the words spoken by God to Moses at the burning bush, God, this is after God gives his name, like his friend name. Like God is generic. He's God, but it's, it's a generic name, right? This is my personal name. This is the name you put in your phone. Right? This is what you call me. This is my name forever. I want you to, I should have, again, I have jet lag. I should have had forever bold and underlined and italics and drawing your attention to it because that's the word we're going to focus on. This is my name forever. This is my remembrance from generation to generation. What's interesting is that the word forever in the Torah scroll, again, I wish I would have taken the picture of it, is olam. O-L-A-M, uh, or Leolam, L-apostrophe-O-L-A-M, Leolam, forever. And the word Leolam, or Olam, is spelt with the letter Vav, a Hebrew letter Vav. It has that in it. Now, there are different ways, there are two different ways you can spell the word color in English, right? C-O-L-O-R. Or if you're our Canadian friends or English friends, you can spell it C-O-L-O-U-R. Which one's right? Neither one, right? You can also do that with center 
C-E-N-T-E-R or C-E-N-T-R-E. However, if you are reading a book and it uses the word color 97 times, and 96 times it's C-O-L-O-R, but one time it's C-O-L-O-U-R, you can draw the conclusion you have a bad editor, but the Torah doesn't have a bad editor. The Torah has the Holy Spirit as its editor. So when it misspells a word, and it's not really misspelled, you can spell it this way, just like you can spell color that way. It's not misspelled. It's just not how it's spelled anywhere else. When the Torah does that, it means, look at me. I'm trying to teach you something. I am revealing something to you. And Jesus himself said a matter is concealed only so that it's revealed. When something is concealed and then it's revealed, it has a greater impact than if you just state it. So what's going on with this word forever here in verse 15 does not have a vav. As a holum, a little dot to let you know to pronounce it with the ol, with the vav sound that's going there, but doesn't have a vav which is very interesting because then, because Hebrew doesn't have any vowels, you can understand that as another word. It can mean olam and forever, but it can also mean olem, which means to conceal. This is my name, to be concealed and to be remembered from generation to generation. So that is one of the reasons Jewish people do not pronounce that name. Because they read that misspelling, not as a misspelling, but that the name is to be concealed. The second reason they don't pronounce it will clue you into, well, then what do you do with it if you don't pronounce it and you conceal it? What are you supposed to do with it? There is an answer to that. It's also in the Bible, and we'll get to it when we get to it in the Torah. All right? So just be aware of that. And so here, this grammatical variation on God's four-letter name, uh, that it should be concealed. There is a profound message here regarding God and his names in general. Paradoxically, God is simultaneously revealed and hidden in this world. That's one of the things it's trying to teach us, right? Because you can see it. It's not gone. It's not erased. It's not an invisible ink. It's not that your eyes can't see it. This is all hinting at the second reason you don't pronounce it. You can see it, but there's an aspect of it that's hidden. And isn't that kind of how God works in this world? Those of us of faith, right, by God's grace, with the working of the Holy Spirit and what's happened in our life, we don't doubt the existence of God. We know God is real. Have you seen him? No, right? Has he revealed himself? Yeah, he has. And clearly he's revealed himself even in his son. He's revealed himself. But is he also kind of concealed? Yeah. That's why the Jewish people do that. It's an always reminder of the reality that God is both revealed and there's aspects of him that are concealed. It's a paradox. He fully reveals himself, lives, dwells among us like he did in the tabernacle as he does in the tabernacle, made flesh. 
as he does in us as the tabernacle of our hearts. But at the same time, it's kind of concealed. That's why his name works that way. It's revealed. Here it is. This is my name. But then it withdraws. It's teaching us this fact. Full revelation of God's light and presence would, by definition, nullify us. Right? We wouldn't be able, our vessel could not handle the fullness of the infinite. Infinite isn't going into a finite tube, right? It's the round going into the square hole, right? It isn't going to fit. In order to prevent the world from being entirely overwhelmed, God conceals and contracts. For this reason, again, he is the place of the world, but the world is not his place. This is a reminder that although our finite world is filled with the imminent presence of God Almighty, there's simultaneously an aspect of God that is truly transcendent and infinite. Is God imminent? Yes. Is God transcendent? Yes. Is that a paradox? Yes. And that's revealed in the name you see, but you don't say. See how it makes more sense now than they forgot how to say it? Like, there's a deeper reason, right? And that comes if you just... Take the time to learn. Take the time to learn. It's a powerful reminder for us. And also in our own lives. Because there are times when God seems really close to us, right? It's amazing. It is like he's right now. It is like you're touching him. And there are other times where you're like, I don't don't feel him at all. And if I really didn't kind of know better, I don't know if he's, you, you know, you don't even want to say it, right? But you've probably been there. That's his nature, which goes back to a fundamental thing in your Hebraic toolbox. Run and return, right? Descent for the sake of ascent. It's the rhythm of life, folks. But then once you know that's the rhythm, when you find yourself in that distant place, you know something great's right around the corner. Trying to remember it. I've been trying to remember it all day, and I've been trying to find it. It's a quote. Uh, Rebbe Nachman taught his students. It's essentially like this. I hope I get it right. I'll probably find it tomorrow and then realize I butchered it. You're never as far from God as when you think you're close. And you're never closer to God than when you feel afar. That's the paradox revealed in the name that is seen, but is not spoken. Revealed and conceal. Okay. And I want to close with this last piece. And I'm glad we record this because you're not going to get this in this time period. You're going to get some of it, but this is going to be really, really, really good stuff. So I want you to actually listen to this again or watch it again, maybe a couple of times. Because whether it's in early Christianity It was called Lexio Divina. And Lexio Divina is still practiced by some Christians, but primarily those of a mystical nature. It's how do you pray the Bible? How do you how do you take the text and then like let it become you, enter you, change you, right? It takes more than just looking at it or just reading it out loud. 
And it's a practice that the prophets did. It's a practice that's in, as I said, Christianity, again called Lexio Divina. It's also in Judaism. And I want to, it's where you look at a text and you, you identify whether it's a question or a set of verbs, like in this case, like you identify something in a, as a section, and then you kind of, you kind of, they kind of pull it out, and then take it in. So I'm really wanting to teach you a method, not so much this exact thing. You got to believe the. I'm teaching you a method that you can apply to any portion of the Word of God. I'm not concerned about teaching you facts. You can get facts in an encyclopedia or a commentary. I want to teach you how to use the Word of God. You can find when, what year B.C. the Exodus happened. You can watch your Discovery Channels for all that. And it's fascinating and all that's important. No. I want your life to be different. I want you to see that this changes you. And so I'm going to take you through it. I'm just going to encourage you to listen to it again. But it's going to be a practice I want you to do this week. And it's how you can make use of Shovavim, the energy, the spiritual technology. So as we enter into the book of Exodus, we're being called to live ever more consciously the story of our own bondage and our own liberation from that bondage. Their exodus is your exodus. You're being called to enter into that. So the story happens in what I would call, what my rabbis taught me, the timeless present. It stirs the soul to its awakening. Only when we can know and experience the journey from slavery, bondage, addiction, oppression, constriction, chaos, to redemption and liberation, only when we can experience that every day can we really trace, taste freedom and enjoy the land of milk and honey that is our inheritance. The land of Israel isn't just a geographic location, though it is that, and it's the best place on earth. It's also a state of consciousness. Our blessing, the possibility of liberation and redemption, all of that is born at the greatest time of travail. That's one of the things the story's teaching you, folks. And so the archetypal Moses is born within you and me, at the moment of despair, when we have been beaten down, when we have been constricted, when we have been forced into the narrowest possible definition of ourself, that seed of truth and vitality is hidden away and then placed in a teva, an ark. What distinguishes an ark from a boat is this. An ark does not have a sail or a rudder. It is a vehicle that is completely surrendered to fate, if you will, but for us, we know it's God's will. As with Noah's ark, the hope of a new world, a new kind of consciousness, freedom, redemption, liberation is set afloat. 
And again, the Baal Shem Tov reminds us that the word for ark, teva, means word. The word filled with potential is set adrift on the river of life. This is how our journey toward deeper spiritual consciousness and connection to our Creator begins. The inner seed of prophecy filled with our true essence is surrendered and entrusted into the hands of God via the primal waters. From there, it is embraced by the journey, blessed with the experience, the education, the nourishment, and the inspiration sent to distant lands as we are initiated into deeper wisdom and shown the secrets of the wilderness. We are prepared by the landscape of our lives until finally one day we stumble upon that same bush that we have passed by a hundred times before. But this time, we actually take notice and learn its lesson. This time, our eyes are open to perceive its fire. In that extraordinary moment of blessing, God calls us by name twice. Because in Exodus 3, 4, he calls out in the midst of the bush to Moses. He says, Moshe, Moshe. And you'll find that in the scriptures. When God really wants to get a person's attention, he calls their name twice. Breaking through the outer self, going to the inner essence. That's why it's twice. Once to get your regular attention, two to get the attention of your soul. And that inner essence then responds with this word in Exodus 3, verse 4. Moses says, here I am. Hebrew, it's Hineni. Write that down because I want you to pray Hineni. This week, just pray it a different time. And me, and it's not just Moses. Abraham said it. Many of the prophets say it. Hineni is the response in the Bible when someone actually affirms the call of God on their life and they're ready to embrace it and they're ready to take it on. They say Hineni. So when you finally see that bush and you see the fire, when you finally are in that place, just breathe Hanani. Here I am. That's all you're saying to God is, here I am. Hanani. It's a powerful, powerful word from the book of names. We are called into the presence by the sudden knowledge that the ground on which we stand is now holy. We are commanded to take off our shoes, for nothing must come between us and the sacred ground. We're called into prophecy as we receive the great name, Ehye Asher Ehye, Exodus 3.14, I will be that which I will be. Standing on that ground, we're sent to do the work of liberation, freeing ourselves from the societal expectations placed upon us and what is supposed to be normal. The blessing of Shemot, sends us to work the impossible. So here's the spiritual challenge for you this week. For 400 years, the people of Israel had suffered the oppression of Egypt. Only when the sigh and cry and the groaning were sent forth could the process of their liberation be set in motion. God waits for that cry, and that cry only happens when self-awareness is achieved and the Spirit is set free to be heard, to be remembered, to be seen, and to be known. This is all from Exodus chapter 2, 
verses 24 and 25. Those are the four verbs used to describe God becoming aware, if you will, of the oppression of the Israelites. This is where we're going to take these four verbs before God acted. It was as if he were deaf to them, and that was their experience. It says he heard them, he remembered them, he saw them, and he knew them. That's the four verbs. That's the process. So what we want to do this week is how do we be heard? How do we get remembered? How do we get seen? And how do we become known to God? The spiritual challenge of Shemot is to cultivate the awareness of our own enslavement. Consciousness must precede the cry that awakens the God force of liberation. To be heard by God is to let the inward sigh become an outward cry. Pay attention to the text here. At first, they cry out, but they don't cry out to God. They just cry out, and there's no response. It's only when they cry out to God, only when their inward sigh becomes a true outward cry are things set in motion. The cry is what breaks the pattern of enslavement. It shakes the status quo until the memory of the covenant God has made with you, either through the waters of your holy baptism or that he's made with you through the power of his word and sealed with his spirit, that that is jarred awake. To be remembered by God is to remember the presence of God within. To be seen by God is to lift the veils of self-deception. And to be known by God is to move beyond pride and shame and surrender all to the unknowable, capital U. When the God force is set in motion by our cry, our lives become the scenes of miracles. So the archetypes of, the Mo- of Moses the prophet, of Aaron the priest, of Miriam the artist, they are awakened within us to power, and then Pharaoh is challenged. When that happens, when Pharaoh's power is threatened, guess what happens? He takes away your straw that you used to make the bricks in enslavement. The task becomes even harder. Be prepared for it. If you want to advance in your relationship with God, be prepared for that to get hard, not easier. Going to take away the straw. Push through it. We see how slavery living from our conditioned responses has deadened our senses, drained our vitality, kindled our doubt. And our usual strategies for survival no longer work. But there's no turning back now. So here is the guidance for practice that I want you to do this week. This is how you can make the text come to life for you. It's it's kind of... um, Again, those are, we're going to be basing it on these, these four verbs. Heard, remembered, seen, known. Exodus, 20, Exodus 2, 24 through 25. This is mindful. That, that's your modern word for it. It's devotional. It's meditation. It's ancient word. Very deeply rooted in the church. It's Lexio Divina. It's a biblical practice. So here's what you do. Identify an area or aspect of your life that is a source of stress. A pattern of thought, perhaps, 
that leads you into negativity or despair. Maybe a particular way of relating to someone that you know isn't productive. You might identify a habitual response that is rooted in insecurity or fear. Maybe identify an addiction or a place of resignation or identify bitterness within you. When you you find that, just sit with the feeling of that enslavement because that's what those things are. It's Mitzrayim, it's Mitzra. Don't fight it, don't deny it, don't argue with it, just name it. Name it and claim it and let it sink in and let yourself feel its weight. Feel the bricks, feel the labor. Then find the cry within, the inner sigh. Look underneath that weight and find then the inner sigh. But then begin to think of a word or a phrase buried beneath your despair, your resignation, your bitterness, your fear, and then say it out loud. Literally, say it out loud. Uh, Then here's what you do to get heard. Open your mouth. And let that sound or that word or that phrase out and repeat it again and again and again. Explore varying pitches, volumes, and tones. But let your cry tell the truth that has now, up until now, you've kept silent. You've kept hidden. Let it out. Sing it. Add a melody to it. Take time. Do it for at least 10 minutes. That's getting hurt. We want God to remember you. We've talked about what remember means in Hebrew. It doesn't mean God forgets, but it means God acts based on his promise. In the silence that will follow your cry, bring your attention to the breath and imagine the breath moving directly into the space inside your heart center. As your heart expands to receive breath, invite your Messiah to come and sit inside your heart. Feel the power of his deepest longing within you and receive his blessing. Seeing. Then imagine yourself as a very young child and surround your vision with your most tender compassion. And then imagine yourself very old at the moment before your very peaceful death and breathe out your entire life and then breathe in the unknown. Doing this along with reading the first chapters of Exodus will change you. Don't believe me? Do it and then come talk to me. Because it will if you do it. We will close there this evening.
As I said, next week, no Torah. I will be at a symposium. Theologians in the up, but we will return January 23rd, 6.30 p.m. in this place. All right, let's close with the blessing of the study of Torah. Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah. Blessed are you, Lord God, who has given to us the gift that is the Torah. Amen. Shalom, shalom. Go in peace. <laughs>